following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, I want to start by paying a little tribute to my grandmother. Uh, Grandma, my mom's mom, died uh, almost a year ago in February of last year. And uh, Grandma was uh, a warm, loving, very funny person. I remember one of the things she loved to do was to swim. Now, she wasn't able to swim much later in life, uh, but she was an avid swimmer when she was younger. And I remember growing up in Maine, she would come to visit with my granddad, and she would swim in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, if you've never swum in the ocean off the coast of Maine, I've got to tell you, my friends, <laughs> you've got to be hardcore. <laughs> uh, on the, at the, in the dog days of summer, that water is about 60 degrees. And uh, she would get in there and swim like a fish. Grandma loved Scrabble, and she would beat the pants off of you if you tried to play against her because she had played for so many years. She knew all the little words, all the fancy places to put them, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and she, we would always uh, sit around the Scrabble table, and we would eat um, Triscuit crackers with whisk-fried cheese spread, right? Um, which was not the cause of her death, <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> enough. Uh, although it might be the cause of mine yet, I don't know. Um, she loved Jesus. She loved the church, and she could be found in church every Sunday morning, and she would sing these hymns out loud, despite the fact that she could not even remotely carry a tune. And, uh, boy, you didn't, you didn't want to be next to her in church. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what the hereafter looks like, what heaven is like, whatever it might be. I don't know if when you get there, you can, everybody can sing really beautifully, or if when you get there, it's all the same, but nobody cares anymore. I tend to think it might be a little more like the second than the first. Um, but I imagine that she's still singing loud uh, wherever she is and however that works. Um, when Grandmom died, she had been a widow for over 15 years. She was predeceased by my granddad, who died in 2000, I think it was January 2001. And in that time, which happens to be loosely correlated with, with my adult life and, and kind of knowing her in a different, from a different perspective, I saw in her an increasing loneliness. Now, she never stopped being a, a faithful Christian and loving God and, and enjoying life. She didn't stop smiling. She didn't stop laughing. But when Granddad died, the, the weight of that is something that I can't possibly comprehend myself um, because they've been married for longer than I've been alive. That was, a, that was a momentous loss for her. And then in the, in the following years, because she lived into her 90s, that kind of means that you're likely to be the last one. And I, I saw as her best friend from the town where she lived in my childhood, a person who I thought of as kind of like a third grandmother died. And I saw as um, the people that got married in, this, in a dual ceremony with her and granddad died. And I saw that she didn't have very many friends anymore. And um, she was very fortunate in this respect that my parents had the, the means and the desire to care for her. And so they, would have, they had her live with them for part of this time. And when they moved from different city to different city, she would follow them and either live with them or live very close by and eventually in supportive housing. And, um, you know, I, I saw her make one last Scrabble slash church friend late, late, late in life. And she had this one person 
that she met, she was able to go play Scrabble with every day, go to church with every Sunday. And then that person died. And by the time Grandmom died, she really had nobody left except my parents. Now, I would describe that as probably pretty close to a best-case scenario for someone who lives into their 90s and has such good familial support. And even for her, I saw this sadness creep in and, and just kind of, it was never not there. And, of course, I, I can only manage so much true empathy for her situation because my situation is so different. But because she's a person who I loved so much... I get a little bit of a, a window into what it's like to be a widow. And again, that's in a best-case scenario in a developed, wealthy country. <laughs> then I start thinking about the Bible's call to justice for widows and for orphans, and I think what it might be like to be a widow in the biblical era, in the ancient Near Eastern world, being a widow in a patriarchal society where men held all the power and wealth... To lose your husband was not quite a death sentence, but it was not a good thing at all, to put it very, very mildly. No financial independence because the men were uh, both figuratively and literally the breadwinners. No financial independence and no food unless you begged for it. No protection against the very real risk of physical attack. No real hope for a future because men in a patriarchal society do not tend to want to marry widows. No more children to be born who could perhaps support you late in life as they become adults. And the children you do have are consigned to poverty just as you are if you're a widow in this context. And so I want you to think about that kind of widow situation. As we look at scripture this morning, I'm going to invite you to look in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. We will look briefly at this passage here. Now, here's something interesting about reading an ancient text like this, is that it it speaks to all kinds of specificity that doesn't make really any direct sense to us. There's no one-to-one correlation between some of the things that you were about to read and what the life is like for us and what, what religious life is like for us, and you'll see what I mean in a second. And so what we have to do sometimes is translate this a, a bit uh, and come up with analogous types of things. In other words, to say that uh, what we're reading in this ancient Hebrew text represents something else in our modern North American culture and world. Now, that's not the only way to read an old text like this, but it's the way I'm going to recommend we read it briefly this morning. And so I'm going to pause a little bit as we go through this and try to translate it and um, analogize, okay? Isaiah 1, start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now let's stop right there. Sodom and Gomorrah are famously corrupt cities. Um, Although, according to other scripture, not for the reason that many of us have come to believe that they were. Um, Suffice it to say that for the Israelites to be addressed as Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, that was, a, that was a, a, a burn, shall we say, a prophetic burn. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, this is referring to animal sacrifice, which is mercifully not part of our worship experience now. Um, I would not make a good pastor in a culture that required that because I'm not so good around blood. (laughs) But what are the things we do in our worship experiences now? We come together in this building that we love and we have... Songs that we sing, praises to God, different prayers that we use. And what if God was saying to us, listen, artisan church, I've had enough of your songs. I'm so sick of listening to you sing them over and over again. Stop it. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. These ceremonial things. What's the most ceremonial thing we do when we come together? I would suggest that it's taking communion. Which, um, as Protestant pastors go, I have a much higher view of communion than, than is average, probably. My, my sacramental theology is, is pretty high on that scale. And for me to hear something that might be equivalent to this with the festivals along the lines of your, your bread and your wine mean nothing to me. You receive them thinking that it matters, but it doesn't because you are so full of sin. I would be taken aback at that. This is a sacred, holy meal for us. This is the body of Christ. And yet, for the Israelites, the experience of worship and, and festival observance was just as important. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Don't bother with cider days anymore. (laughs) Oh yeah, now it gets serious, right? (laughs) Your frying of turkeys and pressing of apples is is an abomination. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers saying, thanks be to God and Lord, hear our prayer, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So that epic takedown of Israel's worship practices ends with a call to justice for orphans and for widows. And it's not just the prophet Isaiah. This is actually very consistent in keeping with Torah, with the law of Moses, with the message of the entire Hebrew Bible. In fact, there's even a law built into the Mosaic law that says that if a uh, A man dies and leaves behind a widow. That man's brother has to marry the wife, the widow that's left behind, has to add him to, has to add her to his family, his household, even if he's already married multiple times. Remember I said how in a patriarchal culture no, no man wanted to marry a widow? Well, that's true, and to counteract that and to protect widows, there was a law in the Mosaic Code that said, if, somebody, if, a, if a man dies and leaves behind a widow, his brother is responsible to marry her and take her in and her family and support her and care for her. 
And the call to widows and orphans uh, is to care for widows and orphans is not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a Jewish thing, a Hebrew Bible thing. It's in the New Testament as well. We could look briefly at the letter of James, uh, which I will read to you here in a second. James chapter 1, verse 22, and then I'm going to jump to verse 27. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know, this is an incredibly difficult call to hear because I don't think we, frankly, I don't think we do a very good job of this as people of faith. But here's something that might be reassuring to those of you who are doubters, who are skeptics, who find that Sometimes the supernatural aspects of our, of our faith are very hard to hold on to. You can hold on to pure religion by caring for widows and orphans. And if that's all you have left in your religion tank right now, I bet it would get you through. So do it. So although the world is a, a different place now than it was at the time of the prophet Isaiah or James the Apostle, And it would be very wise for us to spend some time trying to do kind of an analogous thing like I did with the worship styles and things like that to which types of people, if not widows, are marginalized and in such need as the widows in the time of the biblical era were. It would be worth our time to do that. And although that's true, the fact remains also that there are lots of actual widows and widowers in our community that most of us have not met and do not know about who need care just as much. And the call of God is for us to protect them and to honor them and to, as Isaiah says, to plead for them and, as James says, to care for them in their distress. And so I thought, in order to give ourselves a little bit of a clearer sense of what the need actually is in our community... That a special guest might help. And so I've asked Dr. Dallas Nelson, who is a geriatrician, to come and talk with us today. And uh, so, Dallas, Dr. Nelson, as you are known in professional circles, tell us what types of things you see in your work every day. What, what, what are people facing as they approach um, these latter stages of life in our community? So I uh, run a medical practice that serves older adults in independent living, assisted living, and the nursing home practice, and we give primary care and geriatric care to them. So, um, and we go to them, and because one of the main things that's characteristic of aging is the loss of function. All of our organs age. They don't do as well, and they lose forgiveness in the system. And so their mobility is impaired. Many of them have um, cognitive impairment, and so, so they need um, assistance with everyday tasks, daily tasks. Um, and so they often live in um, senior housing to assist them with all of those things. Um, so they have a lot of losses of function. And um, what, uh, how much care and what type of care does somebody need when they're – when they're in this situation? So it, it can go from just um, the early stages where they need um, medication management, financial health assistance in managing their finances, 
um, or meal preparation, housekeeping, to needing everything to be fed by hand or uh, dressed, washed. Um, all, all their needs are cared for by others. And I want to jump right to a financial question, which is this. How much does somebody's um, household wealth impact the quality of the care that they receive as they get to this stage of life? So with more financial resources, you have more options, right? You can hire in private duty sorts of things. You may be able to stay in the environment in which you want to, but as, as you lose finances and function, you, the, there's more government assistance. So um, nursing homes end up being a place where people who are more impoverished and with less social support, um, they end up going there um, because Medicaid is the primary payer in a nursing home, generally speaking. And um, what kind of money are we talking about here for the average nursing home stay? So an, a nursing homes range from about 11000 to $17,000 a month to live in. Um, so it costs... A lot, and no, almost nobody's saved for that in that level of expense. And the average stay is um, eighteen months. So eighteen times eleven to seventeen ends up being like fifty thousand dollars, right? right. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right there. I mean, to get into the best nursing homes in town, they're looking for average savings. Gross assets, that means all your, your house, your everything, at $300,000. That's an attractive applicant. Wow, an attractive applicant. That is an interesting turn of phrase. Um, and if somebody doesn't have that, they'll end up in a, in a Medicaid Less, Right, and the, Medicaid, the ones that cater to Medicaid tend to be more leanly staffed, less, um, and, and less services and amenities involved in it, yeah. So can you tell me um, how this can impact a person's emotional state when you visit with them and when you... So there's a great deal of loss. As you were saying, a lot of them have lost um, their friends, their family, their brothers, their sisters. And some of them have lost their own children if they're very long-lived. Um, and so even the best ones will be like, I'm done making new friends because they just die. Um, but the other emotional impact is a loss of independence. Um, Americans tend to treasure their independence, and losing all of that um, is very frustrating. To go into an institution, you need to essentially get your, your eccentricities. We all have them, but they have to kind of melt into this thing because there's only so many times you can feed, have hot food. Um, and there's only so many people that can do these sorts of things, so you lose so many of those things that you prefer, and there's a lot of loss in that. And, you know, when you need to go to the bathroom, most people don't think ahead, and you have to wait. And the amount of stress just, I need somebody to take me to the bathroom, is incredible, or turn me in bed. Um, and it's incredibly... Um, to live in that situation is almost a universally disappointing experience. You almost wish you had cognitive problems so you didn't know how much you were losing. Now, as we've talked about this now a couple of times, it's, it's, I've come to realize that there's two things that seem to 
contribute to this, probably more than two, but two at least. One, which is that we don't really live multi-generationally anymore. Like in the ancient world, it would have been common for grandparents to live with their children and their grandchildren, and maybe even great-grandparents if they made it that long. Uh, we don't do that in, the, in our culture very much at all. And then on top of that, uh, the life expectancy for um, senior adults, it, well, for all adults, is um, very high. Now if, and, and the average age that you may think of is one thing, but once you get to 60, you know, the chances of hitting those top numbers are quite high, actually, correct? Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've talked about that, and, and, and in both cases, that's just kind of like an is thing. It's not, that's, that's neutral when it comes to ethics and morals and things like that. People move, and that's normal. People get older, and that's normal. But as a Christian, as a person of faith, do you see this as a, are there moral and ethical issues that we we ought to pay attention to when it comes to caring for elderly people? Um, because they are vulnerable. Um, we talked about even in the best case scenario, they're e- easily taken because of cognitive aging. They can fall prey to schemes. They, um, some of the more complex things, they lose mobility. They're incredibly vulnerable. The, um, I think there's this idea that there's a system to take care of them, and there isn't. There's a hodgepodge of independent businesses all rendering services, and it's very confusing and difficult. And so they're a very vulnerable population that needs to be protected and cared for. Um, And I think as Christians, our responsibility is to care for the vulnerable um, populations of which are older adults, not to mention I feel that we almost owe them um, to care for them. They took care of us, and it's their turn um, to be cared for. Um, we have everything because of the people that came before us. Um, so in a minute, we'll conclude with um, what I think a lot of people are anxious to hear, which is how, what are some specific ways we can help. But I also want to ask you, um, how are your patients awesome? Like, what makes them incredible people? So... Um, Something about them got them old, right? I mean, you have to have some resilience to you. Um, There's a fortitude to them, so they have this strength and wisdom. Um, One of the things, we talk about loss of function, but one of the things they're better at is emotional um, poignancy, where they see their crayon box of emotions is incredibly huge. They've got all sorts of different colors of emotions and things. They're interesting people. And ours is kind of like, we got the five or whatever, eight crayons. Um, so they're, they're so much um, interesting about them. They're, they have fun stories, and you can learn a lot about them. So I love the stories, the, the, the way things cobble together the interesting parts about being around them um and they'll you know like it gives you hope they'll say my most troublesome kid was my smartest one I'm like oh, I hope so you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Oh, that's great and you know I feel like especially in a community like ours which on average is quite young that we don't actually we're not aware of this because it's not as visible to us. Is that right. fair yeah, to say? And yeah, it's not a really mixed crowd. Um, and so, and also these, the people that I think about are, have a lot of mobility problems. So they can't come around even if they wanted to come around. Um, so I think that we have to know they're out there 
and need to go to them because they can't come to us. Which is a great segue um, because if one of the things that would be a need is just presence, just friendship, it, how do you do that? Can you just walk into a nursing home and say... I want to make a friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to make creepy. a friend. No. <laughs> it is a little creepy, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that going through um, already established organizations is probably the most... Um, the most effective way to start. Um, and Monroe County is well organized when it comes to services for the aging. They've put all of their resources into an organization named Lifespan. And um, they have a volunteer page and they'll do the training and help you out. Um, Alzheimer's Association, excuse me, Alzheimer's Association is a great organization also for those who really. And they're there to, to support the caregivers, um, which that's, you know, many, the number one caregivers are spouses of people with Alzheimer's, right? And they are under a lot of stress. And so then there's uh, other ways to help those caregivers out. And I think that's a really neat thing to do also. Yeah, so I visited Life, uh, I keep wanting to say Lifeway. Life it's Lifespan's yes. <laughs> website. Uh, and they do have a really wonderful volunteer page. And it's things like um, providing rides or um, respite. Mm -hmm care, which is when you go and give somebody a break, as right. you're just describing. There's lots of different things that people can do. Um, so uh, thank you so much for your insight. It really means a lot to us to have somebody who sees this every day to share with us that this is a very real thing in the world. So would you say thanks to Dallas? For <laughs> and next week when we talk about orphans, we'll have uh, special guests as well. So don't miss that. So I often like to talk about this, this, the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us sometimes is this. Um, all of us in the room heard her talking and thought some version of, gee, that's too bad, right? All of us had at least that much of a response, correct? Even the coldest, darkest soul in the <laughs> right? Um, but there are some of you in the room who maybe it's because you have felt this acutely with a family member. Maybe it's just because you... You have, a, a, you have been given a gift of special empathy in this, era, in this area. Some of you are thinking way more viscerally than, gee, that's too bad. Some of you, your heart is really breaking. And I would suggest to you that that is one way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now about this particular need in our community, I would urge you to talk to Dallas after the service. She can help you find the, the best first step for you to take. And there are others who work with uh, elder care who are part of our community, Katie Goody, Mary Oldweiler, at least I know. There are others who have coped with family members with Alzheimer's whose names I won't shout out right now, but if, you, if you're facing that and you want some solidarity, I can connect people. Um, but the point is, if the Spirit is speaking to you, my goodness, you ought to listen and get involved in this way. So let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for the scriptures, even when they challenge us so deeply and so harshly. And uh, we pray now for the elderly population in our community, for widows and widowers, for those who are their last line of family care, for those who are struggling to help them, for our society as we try to uh, decide the best way to care for them as increasingly people retire and reach this need. Uh, and we pray for our community, for each soul in this room, that you would speak to us and show us uh, if we are to be part of the solution here, if, if you're calling us to uh, care for widows and widowers in this particular way.
Um, please don't let us go. Keep speaking to us as this week goes through and um, give us courage to take a, a first step, even if we don't know what the right one is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now I want to invite you to come and take communion together. Uh, as always, may this be the body and blood of our Savior for you. May it be for you food for your souls, who, which are hungry. May it be for all of us an act of community and continuity with each other, with all the churches around the world who celebrate Holy Communion together and have done so for 2,000 years. Uh, our table is open. If you would seek to follow Jesus in this place, even stumbling across the line, this is for you. We also have a member of the prayer team at the back of the room. And uh, parents, this is the time when you can go get your kids and have them take communion, or you can get them right afterwards. Uh, let's continue to worship God in the sacrament of communion, in the act of prayer, and in singing a couple more songs together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.